Lincolnshire LMC, supporting Lincolnshire's general practices to provide great care. Welcome everybody to another episode of Lincolnshire LMC's Hot Topics um, podcast. I am Dr Lucy doddington Boys, and uh, we're here to chat today about all things uh, liver and I'm joined today by the wonderful Dr Sridharan from ULHT um, who is going to be talking with us today. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much Dr Shri for joining us. Thank you so much Lucy. You can just call me Shri and thank you for having me and uh, hello everyone. Uh, hope you, you really find um, today's podcast um, useful and helpful. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of the consultant gastroenterologists um, in ULHT. I'm uh, based at uh, the Lincoln County. Uh, my special areas of interest are um, therapeutic colonoscopy and I'm the director for the Lincolnshire Bowel Cancer Screening Centre and I'm also the hepatology lead uh, and I um, treat in, in, the, in the Lincoln and the Louth uh, side of things uh, chronic viral hepatitis um, and also uh, um, I've been kind of seeing through the link between ULHD clinicians and the operational delivery network for liver based in Nottingham. So one of the big things I wanted to ask you about today was uh, around the new Lincolnshire liver pathway that's been created that yourself and, and myself and my colleagues have, have been involved in. Um, could you just tell us a bit about that? Why why did we need a, a new pathway? Yeah, uh, well, we call this a, the, the new uh, links liver pathway, but uh, unfortunately the, the previous pathway never came to fruition. Um, when we first started, uh, the liver pathway was first um, created um, with a view to ensuring that patients at risk um, for of um, chronic liver disease are identified and risk stratified at an earlier stage uh, and also monitored and managed um, both in the community as well as in the secondary care with a kind of an integrated approach. Um, because uh, it is chronic liver disease, so it is probably going to be lifelong. And some of them had uh, treatments and some of them didn't have uh, a robust or effective treatment to to curb the progression. Uh, but either way, they would be identified and risk, risk stratified. And so that if they do um, happen to have complications, they are in the right place. Now, this is in line with the NICE guidance, which were actually published, uh, the NG49 for NAFLD, on non-alcoholic fatty liver and the NG50 for management of cirrhosis in adults were published in 2016 and 2017. And we actually started the process in 2016. So we created um, an all-encompassing uh, combined liver pathway, which was then presented to the GPs in one of their PTLs uh, in 2017. And suggestions were taken and it was taken to the contracting stages. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, due to various reasons, which I don't think we need to go into the details of that today, uh, it, it, it didn't it didn't come through. And um, so we revisited that again in 2019 because it was you know not coming past the contracting stages. But by then we'd had a lot of feedback from um, our primary care clinicians as well. Uh, and so we thought it was a good opportunity probably to revisit the pathway make it comprehensive, but at the same time, simplify it. And also that the primary thing uh, behind the new uh, kind of links liver pathway is um, the joint working of um, people like yourselves and us. So clinicians uh, 
across primary and secondary care and also not just clinicians. Also, we've had the project managers and program managers on board and um, to do with the technical and also to do with the um, feasibility side of things and also uh, to provide an opportunity uh, for GPs to access it quite seamlessly, which then can take them into referral forms, which can take them into other links and things like that, so they can um, access it electronically. So it, it was a, um, a mammoth job, uh, but looking back, it didn't. It doesn't look like that because we uh, we we really worked together very well, and then just got these done, and then uh, hoping that this will actually make uh, things much easier. For the GPs, and it might be—it definitely will be much more beneficial from a patient perspective, which we will talk in a minute. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm really, really happy to see this these sort of series of new pathways come through, and it's been great being involved in it and seeing how sort of primary care focused the pathways are and how deliberately they're meant to be straightforward, easy to use, easy to follow, and actually educational as well. We've kind of, you know, gone to you know quite an extent and you've had a you know a huge role in making sure that this is really straightforward um so that's been fab i'm i'm quite curious um obviously this has been going on for quite a long time now um and obviously we've had an entire pandemic as well to deal with um i mean how do you think covid has actually changed the gastroenterology service and do you think there's any any updates or is there anything particularly that we could you know let primary care know about um the first thing that has actually changed from a gastroenterology and hepatology perspective is the patient contact as it is in primary care is more and more uh, through remote platforms. So we are actually doing a lot more um, telephone clinics. We are actually doing uh, a lot more video clinics um, and the face to face appointments are actually um, selected and, um, you know, and, and that is for from an appropriateness purpose it's, it's absolutely essential. Uh, appointments are actually face to face uh, and um, from our audits that we had actually done on the two week wait patients that we triaged and we had actually done as remote clinics uh, we've actually found that the patient acceptance is not uh, bad at all uh, in fact they were just grateful that we were able to get reaching them but that might change in in, in the next phase of pandemic uh, so that might change but still uh, that is coming to vogue anyway. So the remote platform usage for clinics uh, has come into place and uh, that is here to stay. Um, from another uh, perspective, from an endoscopy perspective, um, I mean, we we're just discussing what mainly is going to have an impact on primary care patients as well as doctors. Yeah. And, and uh, so the open access endoscopy is no longer in place. And obviously that was actually closed for a reason. And then at the time, we actually thought we always knew that uh, only 3% of our open access endoscopies actually probably were giving a significant pathology um, uh, from a cancer perspective. But but also uh, we knew that we were actually doing a lot more endoscopies, which probably is not viable or sustainable in, in the COVID era at the time because of turnover times between patients and all that kind of things. But then down the line, when they all settled down, we still thought, well, there is a better way of doing this. And a couple of pathways are being worked. Well, it, it, it's a work in progress at the moment uh, in general for gastroenterology referrals as such. And like we have the liver pathways, there are other work groups 
uh, I'm sure you are a part of a couple of the other ones as well. Um, to look at gastroenterology holistically, rather than just having an endoscopy, having this test, having this two-week wait referral, and then and what we had actually found in the past, we always knew that, but we didn't know how to break that uh, from happening, is we, we do actually have patients who do come back into the into the system because they they were not dealt with holistically. So we, we just got one result of back to the GPs and, and that's where it stopped. Fantastic. I mean, the, yeah, you mentioned there about advice and guidance as well. I mean, that was a big part of the creation of these pathways. You know, it was I've I certainly felt from the GP perspective, um, really reassured at how keen you and your colleagues are to accept advice and guidance. So I suppose the next thing I was going to ask was, um, why, why, why is it so important? And, and um, you know, why is the focus of the pathways a lot more towards advice and guidance now, do you think? Yeah, so I, I think to put things in perspective, we always need some numbers, don't we? So um, I had done a recent review of, of all of the gastroenterology outstanding referrals on the on the routine pathway. Um, at one point, uh, we were looking at a waiting time for a routine gastroenterology referral was close to a year, so it was about eleven months, and that that is clearly unacceptable. Yeah, uh, by any standards. So, uh, and I, I knew from a hepatology perspective, I can actually increase capacity by doing a couple of things and I can actually uh, deal with some of the referrals, um, i.e. without the patient just being seen in clinic. Um, like, um, you know, what the pathways are going to say, you know, refer for fiber scan, refer for advice and guidance and all of that. So that will, um, but I was quite surprised then the numbers that we dealt with. So I, I looked at about 800 referrals that were outstanding. And I knew um, that a substantial proportion will be liver patients. And I found that 20% of our GI referrals in total was something to do with liver. Um, these are all routine referrals. So 20% of uh, all GI referrals were related to the liver. Um, half of which, that is 10% of all gastroenterology referrals, um, could have been avoided or could have been uh, dealt with uh, an advice and guidance, or even simpler, could have been dealt with in the primary care if the liver pathway is followed. So that is a substantial number. And these are the patients who are actually waiting for the same for about a year. You can actually send an advice and guidance, and however tardy we are, you might still get the reply back in seven days. Even though we do say that we need to get back to you by 48 hours. Um, most of the time we do, but sometimes we don't. Um, and But it's never going to be more than seven days. And so for you to send a referral and then to get back to the patient with an outcome and an answer is not going to be more than 10 days. And 10 days is nowhere compared to waiting a year. In my conversations with some of the GPs, uh, they, were, they actually said, I, I, I'm worried about patients dying of heart attacks and strokes or a cancer, but I'm not actually seeing you know, deaths from liver disease. And well, why is it such a big thing? Again, to put things in perspective, uh, liver disease is the only chronic disease uh, where the mortality is going up. And most carefully or more importantly, UK is the only country in Northern Europe 
where the liver mortality is going up. Wow. And uh, it has been consistent. And why is that? And, and, and there are some um, very treatable diseases. There are some preventable diseases which will need to be addressed. And we, it has been hampered before because we didn't have a simple diagnostic test to measure the risk. But over the last 10 years, that has happened. And that is in the form of blood tests as well as non-invasive tests such as fibro scans. And that is what enabled NICE to come out and say you'll need to identify and risk stratify better. And yes, we have lagged a bit behind in Lincolnshire because this could have been implemented in 2017. We could have been up and running when we had a fibro scan, which we got uh, from NHSE in 2016. Uh, but, you know, um, it's, it's never late for anything. But these pathways are actually going to bring that. And it, it's not going to be a problem for primary care clinicians anymore because they have a set pathway to follow. Yeah. And, and so there wouldn't be hundreds of patients with that normal liver test in every GP practice list with a query hanging around, okay, is this significant? What are we doing about that? Should we be referring them? Should we not be referring them? Uh, and what if, even if they referred, whether they will get any kind of investigation or treatment? So those questions probably will um, stop um, bothering primary care clinicians. Yeah, I think you, you, that brings us quite nicely on to the next question I was going to ask you, actually, which, you know, you, you've mentioned about risk stratification, you've mentioned about blood tests, and now we have sort of a lot more in terms of investigations in the arsenal now than, you know, many years ago. And, um, you know, that's fantastic. But I, I certainly, as a new GP, I still do get quite confused about what tests, what you know, which tools, which scoring systems we should be using, particularly, um, you know, whether we should be doing an ELF test or a FIB4. And I just wondered if you could clear up some of that confusion just for, for if only if only just for my benefit, really, just to tell us, you know, what which of these tests should we should we be doing? Yeah, I think it's a very pertinent question um, uh, because uh, the enhanced liver fibrosis test or the ELF test was recommended by the NICE guidelines. So the NICE guidelines did say do an ELF test. But if you go across the country, uh, very few um, CCGs would actually be um, commissioning this test because there are alternatives which you could do at no expense at all. In fact, it is just your normal biochemistry test will actually give you the test. And such scores are the FIB4 scores and the NAFL fibrosis score. Uh, and the FIB4 scores uh, and the NAFL fibrosis score are the most validated of these tests. And as you could say, NAFLD fibrosis score was um, mainly for patients with fatty liver uh, disease, whereas the FIB4 score was validated um, initially with hepatitis C and hepatitis B, and also in um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease later and other um, conditions. And that is why we went with the FIB4 score, and it is much easier to calculate as well. Uh, so that was initially, and then we have moved on a little bit more now. So now you don't need any calculation, nothing at all. So with the FIB4, you could just ask FIB4 like you ask for a full blood count or liver biochemistry. You just add FIB4 onto it, and the laboratory does the score, uh, and they give the interpretation of that score to you as well, which is, again, you can refer that in the pathway. Um, and um, so it, it is much simpler and easier um, score at the same time, which is well validated uh, and is it's as accurate as any other non-invasive 
or patented tests which are actually more expensive. And um, since the NICE guidance in 2017, the BSG uh, came out with their guidance and they, they said exactly the same thing. There was no ELF in there. The BSG guidance say you either do a FIP4 score or an Apple fibrosis score. And you would see across the country, there are different areas doing different tests and we've gone FIP4 because of its um, validation in other populations aside of uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And uh, so that if that is the first step, and the next step would be a, a different form of um, investigation, not relying on another set of blood tests. And that is where the fiber scan or the uh, transient elastography or TE is it called, and that comes into play. And we have put these two together in our risk stratification and management of uh, all chronic liver disease patients. It's great to have you kind of talk these things through because what I'm hearing from you is, you know, don't do an ELF test, focus on FIB4. It's an easy test. It's a cheap test to get from the lab. Um, and that's, am I right in thinking that's preferential in our right. region over, over NAFLD scores as well? Yes, absolutely right. Yep. So the, um, the NAFLD score, if you do, then you will need to calculate the whole thing and you will need to get, you know, other uh, you'll need to do, check the BMI, you'll need to get the triglycerides and all of that kind of thing, and then you have to put it in a, uh, in, in a formula again. Um, whereas the FIP4 just gives you one touch of a button, FIP4, and you get the answer and you get the interpretation, and we have set it up in the laboratory as such. The, the only place where FIP4 doesn't have a place is in alcohol-related diseases. I do see some GPs do the FIP4 score and write back there the FIP4 score is seven or five or something like that, which is quite alarming for them. Um, FIP4 score relies on AST and the platelet count. And the platelet count is going to be low in alcohol-related liver disease, and the AST is going to be higher than the ALT in alcohol-related liver disease. So because of that, the FIP4 is always going to be high. So in our pathways, what we've explained is we don't bother with the FIP4 score in patients who are having alcohol-related liver disease. If you think they are at risk and if they are engaging, they need really a scan. And so they actually bypass that step and they come straight to a fiber scan. That's a really good learning point, actually. Um, so if you've got an alcoholic patient and you've sort of been worrying or wondering about what the next test is, you know, obviously that's what the pathway is there for. It tells you exactly what to do step by step. But it's I guess it's just reassuring to know that you would be probably I'm, I'm hearing from you probably be headed towards a fibro scan for these patients without Absolutely. the need for a poor. Absolutely. Yeah. OK, that's really helpful. Um, I mean, we are going to talk in more detail about each of these individual pathways and go into more detail about um, the tests and exactly why they're necessary. But I think just getting that over overview from you has been really, really helpful. Um, and just just to summarise, really, um, the, the new pathways that we, we are hoping to implement in Lincolnshire are for a variety of different uh, sort of liver conditions. So non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, um, also the kind of um, single sort of abnormal marker, so your raised bilirubins, your alkaline phosphatase, your gamma GT, um, and sort of more hepatitis type presentations or cholestasis presentations and the alcoholic patients that we've discussed already. So we've got a range of different kind of pathologies that each of them have got a defined pathway in. Um, 
hopefully it's going to make it really really straightforward i personally do think it is quite straightforward and easy to follow and there's some really nice explanations for each of the pathways as well so we will go through each of those in a bit more detail now um but i just want to say thank you um dr shri again because it is just really great to just get the opportunity to talk through what's going on in gastroenterology at the moment and um hear from you just to mention that we're happy to get any questions through anything that we talk about today I'm happy for you to email through to Lincoln Trail MC and we can always pass on any questions to the gastroenterology department and um, hopefully we can work together to improve the service for everybody. Absolutely, we'd be delighted. Thank you so much for listening today. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. (laughs) 